Hi, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Agile Coffee Podcast. My name is Vic Bonacci. And, dear listeners, it's been a little while. Uh, last time we put an episode out, episode 56, was in early January, and it was from a recording that we did in in December, I want to say. Uh, Larry Lawhead, Curtis Gilbert, and Ben Rotlitz were in that one. Today's episode also has Larry and Ben, and we will be at Colleen's house for episode 57, which you'll hear in just a couple minutes. I wanted to share with you that I also have uh, a few more. Um, in fact, I've got quite a quite a backlog uh, forming right now, so I need to get through some of this work in progress and, um, and get on with it. Uh, episode 58 was recorded a few weeks back up in Seattle uh, at the beginning of February, actually. Um, at the Agile Open Northwest, and then I recorded what I thought was going to be episode 59 um, about a week and a half after that down in San Diego at the Agile Open San Diego in the middle of February, uh, both really great episodes. But I think that I'm going to merge them both uh, just because I want to get through some of this backlog here. Um, so episode 58 will be a double episode with uh, two Agile Opens, one from Seattle and the following uh, week later in San Diego, all in the same episode. Also look forward to um, my other podcast called Path. It is uh, featuring Colleen Kirtland this time around, who is featured in today's Agile Coffee as well. Uh, you're going to hear her on piano in just a bit. And then a little bit further out on the horizon, probably what will become episode 59, um, I will be in Carlsbad, uh, California here with my friend Paul Winia, who's hosting a Lego Serious Play session here in about a, a week or so. Um, ben Rodlitz again, will be joining me down there with Paul, as well as Paul Moore and, and Lorraine Aguilar. Um, so look forward to that probably sometime, let me get through this backlog, maybe sometime in late April at this point, getting episode 59, the Lego Serious Play episode out there. But uh, it should be a lot of fun. And speaking of play and California, uh, did you know that I have been teaching uh, the training from the back of the room class? That's right. Sharon Bowman put together the two-day class, How to Make Training Fun by Using Brain-Based Principles for Adult Education. Uh, I will be teaching classes, uh, two classes actually, one in San Diego in August, and that is right before Agile 2018. And then my second two-day class will be in Irvine right after the Agile Open Southern California in September. Uh, the dates are all on my website tbrcal.com. You can also go to trainingfromthebackofcalifornia.com, but the shorter version is tbrcal.com. All right. Well, here we go. We've got a little bit of blues to start you off on this episode, which was recorded, I should say, right in the beginning of January, which is why we're referring to the beginning of the year and some Christmas soup. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a fresh brew of Agile Coffee, episode 57. This is a... That's okay. Agile Blues 
Mick and Larry too. Colleen and Ben were dancing again. Hey, hey, hey. The Agile Blues. Where's Ben? Where's Larry? Come on, it's not scary. Welcome back to the kitchen episode of the Agile Coffee Podcast. This is episode 57, and we are in Colleen's kitchen. Actually, dining room, I guess, more specifically, right? It's kind of a kitchen dining room. Yeah, we're kitchen adjacent. (laughs) I'm Vic Bonacci. You can reach me on Twitter at Agile Coffee. Around the table, we have Colleen Kirtland, who on Twitter is at Purpose Creator. Ben Rodelitz, you can find him on LinkedIn. Larry Lawhead on Twitter at Larry Lawhead. All of these methods of contacting us will be in the show notes on the website at agilecoffee.com slash episode 57. Well, here we are, celebrating the new year, celebrating food, fun, friends, all of the above. Oftentimes, when when we get together, um, maybe not us necessarily, but sometimes the topics seem to be repetitive. This one looks like the most creative uh, set of topics I've seen in a while. So I also wanted to thank Colleen for the spirited musical introduction today. So where did that song come from? I don't know. I just feel like, well, you know, me and music and Agile and bringing groups together and listening, right? Listening to each other. So every time we get together, we just got to have some fun. So I decided we got the piano today since we're not outdoors. Why not? <laughs> uh, we're going to start off with a, a topic. Colleen, this one's yours. It's whole systems. Uh, we've got food, health. Regenerating our teams and ourselves. And it's appropriate for today, given the smells that are coming over from the kitchen here. And I think when you and I talked about having this podcast, it was very deliberate, right? We talked about how to start the new year off. And, you know, I I think more and more, yes, I love talking agile, but I I really love to share just tips on life and and how to live better, right? And so um, I'm going to actually give some props and kudos to some sisters of mine. I call them sisters. They are basically sisters of spirit in the deep south in Starkville, Mississippi. So I'm saying hello today to Allison Bueller, Dana Bailey, and Marion Sansing. These women are amazing. Um, Is there an organization that they're Yes, part of? it's mm-hmm. the um, Homestead Education Center in Starkville, Mississippi. So we'll put a link to that here in yeah, the show notes yeah. as well. And mm-hmm. they actually created that and founded it. So I don't know how many people are aware, but in the United States, there's an FDA designation called a food desert. And a food desert is basically a place, any place, that has no access to fresh produce, fresh uh, fruits and vegetables. We may be asking ourselves, where food deserts exist. Uh, They exist in urban areas, in poor urban areas, and they exist in extreme rural areas as well. So um, the Homestead um, Education Center is dedicated to de-desertifying, I guess you could say, uh, Starkville, Mississippi, which has so much asset in terms of soil and weather and water, and yet Mm. no food production. And most people who live there remember in their grandparents' generation that everyone had a garden and something happened. And, you know, we talk about commercial food systems and uh, I'm a big fan of Michael Pollan and the whole school of omnivores dilemma. And then, you know, cleaning up our food system. I think that is something that I've spoken about in some of our agile groups and communities, but 
if we don't cultivate our health at this very fundamental level, then forget all the wonderful teams. The things we're trying to do in, in, in corporate won't really matter, right? Because this is about us as families, as communities, and helping each other. So I, I wanted to start this episode off this year cooking for you guys because it, it's, it's a gift from my heart. But beyond that, you know, really talking about whole systems because we spend all of our time talking about software and technology. And of course, all of us have a passion for that. But when you step back and you look at a whole system, it is really the ecosystem of us living on the planet as biological organisms, right? And every little single action we take matters. Um, so this group of women um, in Starkville, Mississippi, has basically, in the course of seven years, converted this food desert into a thriving community in the very, very challenging Deep South. And I don't mean to say this in a derogatory way. I think when I reached out deliberately and then went out to visit them um, two years ago at their women's retreat, uh, coming from California, I realized, whoa, the Deep South is very challenged in many ways and has, I don't know if you've ever read the book Soul of Black Folk, but it's a wonderful book written in the 1900s post the Civil War about... Um, just post-Civil War challenges of freeing slaves, right? And so it's sort of like, when I read that book, and it was by William Du Bois, right? Mm -hmm. He was one of the first ever educated black men. Uh, I think he might have even gone to Harvard, if I recall correctly, but he talks about um, the South trying to come out of slavery and how challenging it is for people to actually become independent. And it was like when I was reading this book, which was written around the turn of the century, I could see every single symptom that still existed in the 60s during the civil rights decade. And even today, going to the Deep South, there are elements of that, right? And I'm speaking very openly because my sisters in the South understand that, you know, we don't talk blue states and red states. We talk about healing society. And these women, these three women particularly, um, have been a source of inspiration to me. We, we stay on touch all the time on Facebook. Mm -hmm. We share recipes. Um, and they are amazing. I mean, literally, they are a group of very educated, modern female farmers, cooks, agrarians, healers. One of uh, Dana Bailey is an herbalist. Marian Sansing is an amazing cook. I mean, this woman, not only her husband will um, go hunt deer, and she knows how to butcher the whole thing and make everything from soup to pate out of the liver. She makes homemade soap. She blows my mind. And then Allison Bueller is the one who actually started the Homestead Education Center. And this is a place where it's a safe space. And, and I, I bring this to our Agile community because, you know, it's easy to create safe space in a big urban area where people are pretty affluent. Mm. We're talking like degrees of safe space. I mean, mm. you know, we're talking a level of safe space in corporations. That means virtually nothing when you're talking about people congregating on Starkville, Mississippi every year to explore things like, I'm gay, what do I do about it? You know, um, I can't come out, I, um, or issues about women's health. And this is a safe haven, and it's a sacred space that they hold. And so I wanted to bring them to the Agile community this year and introduce them and give them props and kudos because this is true safe space cultivation like I've seen on no level. And, you know, they, they not only help women, they, they, they help men. They look at marriages, relationships. A lot of them raise their children homeschooled, uh, but they're very educated. Um, 
you know, so I don't want people to get the impression that they have wild kids running about. I mean, this is a, a true community, a very small community, but I have to bring it here to mention it because I think this is the foundation we can build off of and start to connect our country and just forget all the politics, you know, and the acrimony that that so is out there. I want to I want to thank you for starting off by by acknowledging these women and and we'll have a link to the Homestead Education Center and whatever we can do here on the in the show notes as well. But I want to go back to something that you said earlier and which is written on the card too about the whole systems. And I'm looking at Ben too because when we did our less training back about 6 8 months ago or so, Craig Larman was talking to us a lot about systems thinking and we talked about it I think maybe on the last podcast as well. Um so when we talk about whole systems, what can you clearly define maybe what systems, what that system looks like, right. and whether it's with these ladies, with the Homestead Center, with the, the women's... Okay. Uh, well, I cer- certainly don't want to dominate the whole podcast, but briefly said, mm-hmm. if you look at the food system, let's mm-hmm. just put on our hats right now as lean agilists and mm-hmm. say there's an end-to-end process to deliver food from the ground to your table. And the way in which we do it um, in most urban areas mm. is rot with waste and yeah. also, like, really unenvironmental. Like, look at all the packaging we put in. Look at all the artificial ingredients. And we actually, we don't have what we'd call instant time to market. We have a huge delay, which is why we put preservatives into food, right? Mm. So I think when you look at a whole food system, you're optimizing the system from end to end. Mm-hmm. So it's, and then it relates to the kind of work we do day to day in computer sciences, <laughs> And there's an aspect of sustainability that probably yeah. isn't there either, too, when you're talking about agribusiness and, and, and how they are using the land for one certain crop and, and really just poisoning the land. And once it's done, what do they do with it? Um, and, and like you just said, the, the transportation from one place to another, just it doesn't add up. It, it doesn't feel like it's a, a system that can be renewed upon itself over and over again. Yeah, it's pretty pretty clear to hear the things that we associate with lean wastes in software or hardware that came out of what Colleen just said. You know, mm-hmm. the delays, the inventory, mm-hmm. all, all those things are in that those systems too. Yeah, maybe it's not just software. Interesting. I grew up with my grandfather was a farmer. And my uncle was a truck driver, so you could, and he transported food. Uh, for, uh, and it was interesting. Even back then, I thought, "Wow, there's just so much delay. There's so much waste." But I had no concept really, because I was pretty young at the time of system thinking. But I think a lot of times we we we're unaware. We're aware of it, but we're unaware of it because it's so familiar to us. We just don't even think of it anymore. But this is a, definitely a conversation that we need to have. Because yeah. it's not sustainable. I mean, kind of as a, as a tip of the hat, I don't think I've solved the whole problem, but my neighbor and I, we started a garden that's right up the hill over there together. We started it last summer kind of just as a place to congregate and work together, but also to grow a little bit of our own food and regain appreciation. I mean, don't get me wrong, we're not feeding ourselves, but I think it's really important to be back in touch with the very basics of how we operate in the biological ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. And as technologists, um, it's funny, we've gained affluence at the cost of so much else, right? Mm-hmm. You look at the kind of uh, energy it takes to run Bitcoin mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or blockchain mm-hmm. it, it, or just the kind of plastic waste and mining of rare earth metals that it takes to make computers and the abuse that goes on mm-hmm. when you start to look at the way China is mining rare earth metals in Africa. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like 
think of the whole system. When you think of the whole system, software and agile becomes less important. I mean, it's a great way. We all need jobs and we need livelihood, but let's think about like how we re-engineer livelihood because Mm -hmm. the livelihood we're creating right now is a livelihood that I think needs to be Mm re-examined. Amen to that. So, so tie that into what we're doing here with the the food today. Is there anything <laughs> special on the menu that you wanted to like highlight? As a- so, yeah, well, um, I decided that instead of going super gourmet, we would go very home cooked. So mm-hmm. um, everything was made entirely from scratch. Uh, I did a turkey bone stock out of our Christmas turkey, so we wouldn't waste any food. And I think Marion Sansing would be very proud of me. She's amazing. She, I think she, she literally told me when she flayed the deer and used everything except the leather because tanning is too difficult. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, so I, I made the turkey soup and then we're going to have some latkes that, um, you know, um, it's great to have Jewish friends. They, they bring latkes to my house and I'm like, yum, I'm, I'm remaking this. <laughs> I love that. And Ben also, uh, when he heard that we were having latkes, just kind of lit up. Yeah. I'm, include me in on Agile Coffee and latkes. <laughs> I think it's Agile Soup. It's a new Agile liquid. Soup, yeah. It's a new podcast now. We're getting, well, I like, getting I mean, the, the concept of soup as a system is really interesting. Soup as oh, a yeah. system. Soup as a system. right? Yeah. Now Larry's thinking, how do I monetize that? <laughs> and you're and you're baking the latkes today, which is yeah, if, yeah. if you're familiar with latkes, so you typically think that they're fried. But you were conscious of the noise that it might introduce to our yes. podcast recording. And I don't know. Imagine, listeners, if you will, the frying of latkes in the background. Well, you can't. It's a metaphor because, for it. Yeah, they're being baked. Um, let's move on then. The next card, Colleen, is this yours also? It says yeah. design Do we have too many of my cards or do no. we need to bring it? Okay. No. Well, because, you know, I mean, maybe it's just the gift for having cooked that I'm allowed to have so many cards. <laughs> home, home, it's like, home if you advantage. make soup, you can have many cards. That's the new rule. <laughs> well, this one's a really interesting one because um, it's part of the work that we're doing at Pacific Life right now. And I just want to give a tip of the hat to some of my colleagues. Um, who I'll mention later if we get to the mob programming topic, but um, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with design thinking. Have you heard about it? I was introduced to it about six weeks ago, and it was eye-opening. It is basically, if you look at the yin and the yang, it's been missing. And it's so interesting. Um, I would kind of like, um, Lorraine Aguilar and I actually had a conversation because I think she teaches design thinking and innovation at UCI, And she said, how would you describe the difference? And I I, I told her, I said, well, to me, design thinking is iterative ideation, Mm -hmm. whereas agile is iterative execution, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going through the same kind of mindset and increments and experimentation, um, and you're coming up with ideas, right? So it's kind of this um, merge of like the lean startup thinking and design to Mm -hmm. make sure that everything is human-centric and designed for the human being, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, I've had the pleasure recently to work in Pacific Life on a design thinking team. Mm -hmm. And they brought me in to kind of help them with Agile. And I'm like, whoa, this is like, whoa, this is exactly what we need. And I'm so excited to bring this to the community. And Lorraine actually also Mm -hmm. sees this. And I pretty much think if we start to really promote design thinking, it'll answer all the why and what questions. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. the how part can be answered by our traditional agile practices, right? So I'm by no means an expert, but I wanted to bring this because 
it's been a missing puzzle and I see mm-hmm. it as without it, it's all the reasons why Agile is dysfunctional because the whys and whats aren't answered initially. And there's also no iterative way to kind of reach the consumer and really ask, is this what you really want? Mm-hmm. Is this what you need? Right. So the kind of technology architecture proposition that we have is how do you design a fluid technology layer that is unbreakable when it comes to A-B testing and mm-hmm. change, right? So we, you got you, I think that's going to be fun as a technologist. Um, and one of my um, fellow technologists who uh, said it was okay to mention his name, Chris Grulke, I'm just so grateful to be working with him um, on on this team as te- wearing a technology hat. So do you guys have the one-week sprints for design thinking? I think I've heard that that's something that Yes, yeah, so that's probably Jake, Jake Knapp's book, Sprint. Mm-hmm. We read that book, but mm-hmm. the way we're actually running is truly like jazz improvisation. Our sprints mm-hmm. actually have fluid lengths. Good, okay. And we don't really, we, we kind of, they're because over there's when a, they're over kind of thing. Yeah, yeah and there's a, they run probably two to three weeks, okay. depending on it, but there's a creative iterative process. So there are nine people on the Scrum team, and there are only two technologists. The rest are these absolutely hugely talented consumer research people, marketing designers, graphic designers, and the mm. stuff that's produced, it's like we've done in this very short period so much. Um, you know, I mean, I, I can't speak too much about it because it's it's kind of – um, it's proprietary right now at our company, but I just will say we are moving at incredible clips because the end is already already visualized. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, so as a technologist, we're just sitting there thinking, okay, do we do Apogee, MuleSoft? How do you connect? Do we do, uh, you know, yeah. how do we get this engagement layer going um, with all the tools? And Because you see it right there, right? It's modeled. And I just think these practices are invaluable. So where I'm at, we started... A couple people started talking about design thinking and are we going to do that? And it never got off the ground. So we don't have any where to start with in terms of resources. You mentioned a book. Can you say that again? It's Jake Knapp. I think it's Mm K-N-A-P-P. And it's called Sprint. Mm -hmm. He, I think he was part of Google Ventures. That's right. Um, And, you know, they really do the five-day sprints with the customer research included. And I think that's, that's where we're probably going to head. Um, once we actually have something to test on people, uh, we could, I guess, you know, we could theoretically do it with the UX model, but right now, you know, we're, we're, we're not at that place yet because we, we only got together this past summer, and it's really awesome. I, I, I give props to our Pacific Life um, executive leadership. We have wonderful sponsorship and really talented people sponsoring the design thinking, and they understand that there's a a, a merge with Agile. I mean, they understood mm-hmm. same mindset. Let's bring these technologists in who have that mindset, right? And it's like, if all of our teams at Opens and stuff could see this, mm-hmm. I think it would blow their mind and they would say, why are we even bothering to build this technology when we haven't done all these things in advance? So uh, wh- where would you use it? And I think you kind of partly answered the question already, but where would you use it in, in an enterprise? Because um, that's typically what we talk about is like our work in an enterprise. Um, is it when you're doing product, uh, like what is the product, coming up with ideation of what the product is? What the I think it's who's approach? your customer. Okay. So it's highly mm-hmm. customer centric, and mm-hmm. I think that's the that's what's the, the problem you're trying to solve. Exactly, for the but customer. but for who and, mm-hmm. and and again, what I love is the word empathy comes up so mm-hmm. much in design thinking, and how much does it come up in our community? Right, mm-hmm. it's always there, but 
we actually don't have much empathy because most of the time we force, we still do the tools before the people. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely following the manifesto of people over process and tools because it's all about the people. What are your needs? What are your concerns? You know, why do you, do you want to even buy this thing? Is it worth building out? You know, um, so it's like very low fidelity, very cost efficient and effective, or, sorry, cost efficient and effective prototyping. Um, and you know, there's a there's a person who just joined us. Um, he's an executive from IDEO, and he's amazing too. And so you know, I mean, these people just. Um, and then we have a really great innovations um, ABP as well, who's just so talented. So it's 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 great to have the executive sponsorship, and you definitely need it to to make it work. Yeah. But who's who's not to say that all of us could turn this around, even in an enterprise situation? To say, I think Larry, you talked about like you know, a company wanting to buy service now and then you're asking why, you know? So yeah, it's like, exactly. let's ask who's the customer and what are their needs? We can still use the design thinking on the fact that maybe the customer are IT people or, you know, whoever, but I think it's the people and the customer-driven fact that, the factor that, that we don't... Hey, Colleen, in the way that you're using it day-to-day, um, -day, when you get together and discuss in a, in a retro format, what things have you found you're really happy with and want to continue? And what opportunities to improve have you found um, as you're going through this? That's really interesting. So explain a little more, like, the basis of that question. So if you had a retro, yes, for, yeah. you're doing sprints, there's got to be some reflection done. In the process of what yeah. you're doing, what, what things have you found that you oh, had okay. to adjust? So like the insights and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, like if you're really looking at a real customer, like we're doing market research, you know, or, or different things, you know, you'll, you'll say, oh my gosh, the customer feels like this. I'm really surprised they had this reaction to this product, right? And I'm being nonspecific because I have to be careful about mm -hmm. what I disclose, obviously, but mm -hmm. it is very specific because that customer research is being done. And it's a real person that's not... It, you know, they were reached out to, we selected a demographic and, you know, did all these like different marketing interviews with them and wow, okay. So we pivoted like our product idea in two months. It was like, oh, they don't, they won't like this product. You know, they'll prefer this mm -hmm. product, you know, so. Um, and you had them on site, the customer on site making those? No, uh, there, there are virtual ways of capturing um, mm -hmm. customer research now that are accelerated. You know, in the old focus group thing, you had to fly people out to a place that was really expensive. So that kind of consumer research is becoming much cheaper mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And decentralized too. Yeah. Yes. Great. If you out there have played around with design thinking in your enterprise, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter with the hashtag TailAgileCoffee. The small experience I've had at Teradata is... Um, Part of their response in just completely changing the way that uh, we decide what to do, being a lot more customer-centric. Um, Teradata historically has been uh, a trailblazer in large-scale databases, but mm -hmm. with the advent of um, a, a database as a service and storage as a service, they've had to pivot more and stop thinking about what they think are good ideas and actually getting out to exactly what you were talking about, finding out what are the pain points of the customers. And as part of their uh, restructuring, they've created a product definition team and a product delivery team. And the pro it's the product definition team that is starting to use. They've brought in some really good people 
who expose some of us who are more on the delivery so, side. So are there customers than technology people, largely? No, they're huge Fortune 5 companies okay. that have okay. huge data problems, have huge... Right. So actually, the, the company's changing from a database company to an analytics company, because that's really... Data... I love the comment that data has no opinion. Right. And and they're very interested. The, the, the value in the data, this is outcomes and outputs, right? The data is the output, but the outcome is what you do with it. Right. Um, and um, the idea that uh, there's a commercial about, I'm here to fix the, uh, the elevator. Well, the elevator's not broken. Well, the elevator told us it was going to break. Mm. It's those kind of things <laughs> where if you stop being analytic and you you stop being predictive and you start being prescriptive yeah exactly when you've got a jet engine that is providing 12,000 pieces of data a second and you want to find out what jet engine should we take off the plane and fix preemptively um that's a really interesting problem that didn't exist two years ago you would never think of trying to do that hmm. so in in looking at what the customers what, you know what would help the customers what are your pain points and tell us that Using this idea of the, I like the iterative ideation idea because that's how we were we were working on it. Um, that's a really powerful way to to start going down the trail. I think as technologists, which all of us really are, you know, we really have to look at opening our minds to a completely different paradigm of how to work. Right? I mean. Technology is really, truly a supportive aspect of all this, but it's not the creative driver of why things occur, right? I mean, maybe if you're doing something very deeply software-oriented that's way in a back-office system or maybe an analytics system, but when it really comes down to it, is software helping humans, you know? I mean, one could argue that, I mean, this is an exciting and yet trip. I'm filled with trepidation as well as excitement about what could come of AI and other things that you mentioned, right? I mean, have you guys ever thought about oh, yeah, some of the frightening consequences? I mean, sometimes I would sit up at night just kind of thinking, wow. We have superpowers. We must use them for good. Yes. Yeah. And, and how much does that happen? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you run into the problem of who decides what good is. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, so... Exactly. That's where it sticks. You know, that doesn't mean you don't try it, but... Yes. Yes. I mean... I mean, like never before, I think things are accelerating to a point where even relatively complex decision-making can be done by a machine, right? And where does what does that leave? Where do humans find their value? Because we know already that automation and technology are creating huge disruption in terms of manual labor. Well, you're going to end up with where well, we're, we're, I'm part of the we, humanity, we're going to end up with a huge social social problem of you know, job displacement, and not everybody is equipped to just say, I have my own purpose, I know exactly what right. I'm going to do, I'm going to go out there and find it, right? But we have, we, we, we still have, the, the learning that we're at right now in the decision making, there still has to be an object, objective function that somebody has decided upon for that data to apply, you know, what is the min or max, what is, you know, uh -huh. what's, however I put all this together, what is it that um, we determine says go or, or don't go? The classic example that they talk about with the driverless cars is um, there's an impending accident, right? And there's a car in front of you and there are people at a bus stop and the car has to decide what to do. But you need an objective function for it to take all the 
potential outcomes and decide which of them do you do. And, you know, something like that is, you know, what's the potential earnings of the people on the bus stop versus, you know, that kind of stuff. It's, you know, again, data has no opinion. So, so as long as humans are still the ones creating those objective functions against which the different decisions are made, we still have, we're still clinging on to some control. It makes me think of the, uh, I think it's Kierkegaard had the trolley problem. Whereas you're on a trolley, you, you, you can either like hit the one person, the yeah. one child in your way, or you can sort out yeah, like this these is, five people. This something. is just an extension yeah, of that yeah. to, yeah. you know, <laughs> to, to driverless cars. Sounds better when you say Kierkegaard, though. Yeah, <laughs> so I had to get that in. Um, Lotkis are ready. Oh, food's ready. Yeah. Let's, let's pause for a break. Yeah. All right. So as we've um, just had a little snack break here. Most um, of us finished. Meal break. This is delicious. Uh, the the soup, the turkey bone soup, broth. Well, just, Can you describe yeah. that? Well, it's basically a homemade turkey soup. The, the, mm-hmm. the bone broth was made separately. Right. It was actually cooked for like three days mm. at a low simmer mm-hmm. and then frozen in advance of this, you know, and brought out. And then all the fresh ingredients, like the turkey meat vegetables, were all added this morning. And, and listen to this. Okay, this was baked. Isn't that great? So crisp. Oh, you don't know what you're missing, listeners. You don't know what you're missing. Now it's time for an agile nap. <laughs> Those go really slow. Though. <laughs> we have burning topics here, but not burning latkes. No, no, we don't. See what you did there. Yeah, that was very good. But um, the next topic we have up is uh, Ben. You had written acrimony within the agile community. We started talking about. Um, I guess you were talking about. A training that you went to recently, the uh, SAFE training. Yeah, and I went to SAFE training, and uh, I'd had some experience with SAFE before, and like most of the, of the processes we use, methodologies, frameworks, we can get no argument about whether it's a methodology <laughs> or a framework. Um, you know, there were things that resonated and things that didn't, and, and like most of us, um, if we focus on, on the outcome, what is it we're trying to do, then you can find what works and what doesn't work. And there were getting more training in SAFE than just doing it. Uh, it was interesting to get some of the, uh, the more of the whys and not just look at it as, you know, some of the detractors talk about how overly prescriptive it is and how, um, how much like the way we used to do things the top is, and that's why it's so affected. But what was interesting in the aftermath was, you know, there's a lot of, a lot written about how, well, we do safe, but we've taken the parts of it that we like, mm. and um, you know the things that that are horrible we don't do, and to the point where some of the safe community are writing back and saying, "We get it, but be careful." Mm. You know, if you're doing safe but you don't do um, in- increment planning, PI planning, mm-hmm. then you're really not doing it. That's not something that you want to leave out. And it came back to. Um, a, uh, a comment that Eb Akone at uh, IKONE at um, Cox Automotive uh, tweeted recently in the discussion of SAFE, I, I'm sorry, of Scrum. You know, well, we do this, but we don't do all of this. And his comment was, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, is, yeah, you can do the parts that you want of things and you can leave out other things. But the people who made those specific frameworks get to name it. So... If you're following the Scrum Guide, then you're doing Scrum. 
according according to Ken and Jeff. And if you're not doing it, then what you're doing may be fine, but you really shouldn't be calling it Scrum because the people who talked about Scrum um, said this is what it is and you're doing it. It's the same with what Dean Leffingwell did in Safe. It's the same that Bass and Craig did with Less. And we were talking earlier about Vasco Duarte and, and No Estimates and would there be a better name for that? Well, they chose that name. Right, know? right, exactly. Um, it's just you, you bring up a number of interesting points. Uh, I was sort of thinking, just asking you after that experience of taking the Safe class, what do you feel are the minimum viable product elements of Safe? You know, like what can't you drop versus can you? The PI, the product uh, program increment, I agree, should not be dropped because that's sort of the, um, I guess you could say it's the larger chunk of work if you're doing, the sprints is the smaller leading up to program increments, which are basically, to me, sort of equivalent to satisfying an epic, right, of some kind or um, potentially. But what, what are your thoughts on, on the minimum viable aspects of SAFE? Yeah, so... I, I don't think I would I would go as far as saying that I know what those are. And I, I I'm a lot more interested in what why are we doing our scaling? What's the what does success look like on the scaling? Uh, Armin Marabian has done a podcast on um, measuring your your scaling maturity, mm -hmm. and there are about ten areas. And I think these are ten areas that come up in less. And what you do is you look in within those ten areas. How far along are you? In some cases, a couple of the things in that were safe-specific. There was big room planning, which is um, a hallmark of safe, but it's not necessarily, it, which is not in other scaling solutions. Um, I'm going to forget what the other one was. But, but my, my feeling is, and now that I'm so fresh from the safe training, is to look at, as a as a whole in, in Teradata, where do we want to be? What does success look like in our scaling? Why are we doing the scaling? And then <laughs> let's adopt a, a methodology that, that fits that. So I, ha I have to say I was not a big fan of big room planning at first. And the more I talked, not so much from the class, but talked to other groups, and we're actually going to do our first one at Teradata this coming week. Um, when you understand the why of doing it, then it starts it starts making more sense. So I'm not any any way ready to say this part of safe you need to do and this you don't. Um, but I think we should all be careful within the community of you know pointing the finger and saying no that's not Scrum or no you shouldn't be doing estimates or, uh, or like some of the open space um, uh, folks who are saying you shouldn't impose anything. You know, um, there's a time and place for all of those things. And I think the, the discussions are really good. But I'm starting to see an, an acrimonious tone, you know, where if you impose the tool, you are doing something terrible. I, I, and, and I can't just to finish. I can't see going into Teradata and saying, let's get our thousand people together and, and let's decide what we're going to do. In, in theory, I think that would be a great thing to do. But to be acrimonious if you don't do it is a little distressing. Sorry. No, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you finished. Yeah, I, I was going to say that uh, I feel like the Agile community will essentially well, we'll kill ourselves if, if we get into this nitpicking um, battle over <laughs> labels, brands. You know, I mean, I always go back to the manifesto where it's so elegantly written 
if you if you look at the basic principles and just ask yourself, are we adhering to them and following them? There's so far you can get on just the basics, right? That's another area of acrimony that's interesting is oh, really? the manifesto is old-fashioned. It's been around for too long. We need to update it. Mm. And maybe. And there are some great ideas for it, but again, let's do it without pointing fingers. I, I was at the open space mm, right. in San Diego two years ago mm-hmm. that the second day at the closing, somebody uh, apologized for how vehemently and scatologically he described safe. Mm. <laughs> And I, it was actually a very good thing that, that we came back to, you know, a more interesting discussion. And he had some pretty good uh, things he didn't like about SAFE. But, again, even he recognized the, the acrimony. And, 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 and we're all human beings. We lose the content and the form, right? Everything is form and content. And we want to pay attention to the content. But if the form is distracting from the content, then... So two years ago in, in San Diego at the Open Space, I think that was their first year that they did it, Joshua Kurievsky was there, and he did a session, and Modern I wasn't there the whole time, but yeah. I did come in at that session, and he was yeah, talking about Modern Agile before it became Modern yeah. Agile. Yeah. And in fact, it was, it was so eye-opening that he did one the second day, kind of going into it in more detail. That must have been the one that I came at. Yeah. It was the second day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, and, but that's the way to do it. Yeah. That's the way to do it. it, it I, I, don't, I don't remember him saying the current Agile is... No, is wrong. What, what, what I remember from that second session was he started by asking people just to take a few minutes. He passed out you know, sticky notes. He said, what's well, something... Well, we're agilists. You have to have sticky right, notes. Right. I have stock in the company. Um, he said, like, what, what, are, what are some things that no longer pertain, you know, or, or no longer are as valuable or as useful as they once were maybe when you started out your practice of Agile? Um, so I think it was more on the personal scale of, like, What's not working for you anymore, um, as opposed to what's not working for Agile writ large, kind yeah. of thing, and, and that was good too because um, you get a sense. You know, one person. I think I wrote story points or something like that. But um, one person could write story points, and someone else could be like, "Well, wait a minute, we really like story points." And you can have that discussion and and not assign a, a, a fixed value on on any one item. You know, I run into the problem <clears throat> often that. When you um, first introduce a team or an enterprise to to any kind of agile framework, they want to pick and choose at the beginning before they even understand the concepts. So I try to keep things orthodox up front. And once a maturity level sets in, then things become clear. Mm-hmm. But this picking and choosing at the outset, I've always I've struggled with it because what you end up is... <clears throat> You have an agile implementation, but it looks the same as your old traditional project management. And now you're you're <laughs> you're, you're calling your instead of a project manager, you have a scrum master. But he's doing the project management role. He's using um, Microsoft uh, project to get to do his little waterfall thing. And you go, huh? What? So tell you what, let's just do this. We'll start with Scrum or Kanban. And we'll just work our way through this and see where it leads us. So, so I like to flip the little um, circle around and I say, let's do, adapt, and then plan. Yeah. Right? Because No, because seriously, That's good. Um, as a musician, I'm all about doing and voicing and saying and being in the present. And if you do first and try it in a safe space, which we're all trying to cultivate, 
there's no there's no harm no foul we'll be discovering this right mm -hmm. so do adapt and then plan and then do adapt and then plan right i think that way <laughs> this is this is a practice that i've always come back to agile is a practice i've always come back to because it's about the doing and the results of the doing and it's about how does it feel to really experience this, right? I mean, look at the kinds of practices that are going on now with mob programming. It's about doing. <laughs> and then learning from the doing, right? There's so much that, I mean, in my background and growing up with the wonderful parents that gave me so many opportunities in theater, arts, and music, you never get better until you do it. Mm -hmm. And then you go back and say, how exactly. did that sound? How is that? Okay, I could improve on this. Right. It's really funny how unmeta we are in our agile implementations. In other words, we all yeah. get it. We all sit around and we get, we're going to work in small increments. We're going to get constant feedback. We're going to see what works. We're just going to do something. But we, we, we plan our implementation as a big bang, mm -hmm. and we try to get it exactly right. That was good, Colleen. That really, that, 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 that's, I, I probably couldn't have articulated it that way, but I've always felt that we need to drink our own champagne <laughs> when we're planning our transitions and, and just do something and see if it works. You brought up mob programming just now, Colleen, and, and the next topic says mob programming for vendor management. That's your, your topic. Oh, do you yes. I was talking to Larry about good. this beforehand. Um, so I really have to give kudos again to Chris Grulke, who's a technical architect that is leading the way and setting the example at Pacific Life on bringing in this kind of culture. So um, in our incubation team, in our innovation team, we are doing mob programming, but you might say when. We're actually doing it during vendor selection. And here's the reason why. I've decided, you know, I think two years ago, we were asked the question of buying the tool before you really know, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a challenge that most enterprise, enterprises have, is that the tool comes and then everyone lives with it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in today's day and age, you've got cloud development platforms, you've got ways, you've got AWS that can spin things up and spin things down. You've got configuration tools like Salesforce where you set up a what they call an org and you just start basically configuring and potentially even coding. So in this world that we're in now, I'm gonna insist that every vendor lets you touch and feel things mm -hmm. before you buy them. And so what we've been actually doing on our innovation team is before we do any kind of vendor selection, we have mob programming days with them. Mm. And this tests out a lot because if they're not willing to do it, my question as a technologist is, what are you hiding, or how broken is your software? <laughs> or un right. how unadaptable are you? Or yeah, un how minimum, exactly. So this is not only you know helping us understand how the potential solutions provider works with you and the level of trust and safety we're going to have with them if we sign a contract, but it also gives me a sense of what are you hiding from me if you're afraid? You know, because to give a recent example, um, there was a vendor that. We said, okay, we're going to do this. And, you know, two days beforehand, they're like, oh, sorry. Uh, if you're going to do this, you can't touch the keyboard. Mm. We're going to touch the keyboard. And, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, why? Okay. You know, why is it that we can't touch the keyboard? Because I'm sorry, may I respectfully say, this honestly sounds like either it's really convoluted and difficult to use or it's broken and you don't want me pushing a messing with it, right? I said, we, we're bringing really experienced tech arcs and senior developers to the table. These are guys who configure code, whatever, 
and we all have the ethos that we'll learn together. And I said, some people are willing to do it with us. So some vendors are coming in and said, yeah, we'll try it. And we have a lot of fun and we discover things on how to integrate our APIs and look at other things. So why, what, what's the problem? And you know? who knows? It might actually give them yeah. some learning. Yeah, exactly. Take exactly. And, and, so, and yeah. so finally it comes yeah. out that, well, you gave us the use cases that you want to test out and they're too complicated to accomplish in a day. Aha! <laughs> and I said, but let's start from this basis of honesty. So give me the hello world. Give us, we'll start with the hello world and we will spend that day building together because I want to know how this is going to feel when it comes in our environment. I don't want to be a leader who buys a tool and then enforces it on a team. Let's bring the team in first. Let them test drive this thing and also learn about you. And you you can be the navigator that day. We'll be the drivers because we may not learn. And we'll give ourselves mm -hmm. extra points if we turn into the navigators by the end of the day in our little mob game. Yeah. But, you know, we really want to make sure that if our responsibility of technology is to protect the company's assets, mm -hmm. you know, we need to be truthful from the get-go. So it's like a customer-driven demo. So instead it of them is. coming and just yeah. demoing from a script or from a use from case that we provide. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was, it was just, it kind of came up because we were experimenting with mob program anyway, and I'm like, hey, Chris, what do you think if we do it on the vendor? And, oh, my God, that would be great. And he's sitting there going... And even when, you know how sometimes you might hire, you might use staff augmentation or another out, outsourcing partner to help you? If you do mob programming with them together, you'll actually know what code they left you with. You know, oh, so it was like, that was his, that, that was, that was his light bulb, you know, and I said, Chris, that is absolutely brilliant. And let's just start it even in the vendor assessment phase, you know, and so it, mm -hmm. it just one thing led to another and I, I I think it's here to stay because mm -hmm. to me, if you don't want to bring your tools to us, you know, and tell me honestly what we're working with, then we're not doing our job as technologists. So have we, you done some of these? Oh yeah. Have, yeah. They, have they gone? Well, like I said, some of them are really successful with the yeah. people that are willing to show their wares and others are like, oh, we don't want to. And here's the reason why. But in those cases, like at least we haven't had anybody back out, we'd say. Really? Then it just, well, no, because then yeah. we'll say this is where we're starting from and this is the realistic okay starting point and maybe at the end of the day we'll have hello world with some bells and whistles on it you know yeah, yeah. but at the end of the day you know that's kind of what we want to know is like okay so we can't really do the middleware integration in the day got it no problem <laughs> you know but please be honest and and if we're going to start off with agilists and sort of safe space and honesty we want to have that with our prospective vendors as well mm -hmm. absolutely well and the vendors don't understand that you're not just um, evaluating the tool, you're evaluating the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and mm -hmm. and that's part of it. Yeah. You know, your answer to my very first question is the beginning of our interview. Mm. So, hey, your tool may be great, but if I can't work with you, I don't care, mm -hmm. or I might not care. So, so try it. Dangle that one out there yeah. and see yeah. what you that's get. That's really interesting. And and I think you always got to look around at these kind of vendor demos. If there's twelve salespeople and one engineer, you got to ask yourself, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's always fun to tell the tech guy to get away and have one of the other guys go do it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I always like that when I saw a mob programming um, overview, whether it's Woody's Will or someone else kind of running mob programming in an environment, and then there's the, the suits like standing at the doorway or the or the back of the room kind of thing watching all the tech guys, and and Woody or someone would kind of stop and say, okay, you, you could join us too now. You know, you could sit in here and hands on keyboard. Oh, I don't know how to keyboard. I don't know how to... 
how to do any coding. Well, and I'm sure Woody, knowing him, I, I met him one time. Mm -hmm. He's so inclusive that I mm -hmm. think that that would. I wonder oh, yeah. how that would have gone with yeah. the salespeople. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, I don't want. I don't mean to belittle salespeople at all. I mean, I know they have a job to do, but if you look at the traditional sales model you've got people in suits selling to executives mm -hmm. making decisions so let's flip the paradigm around mm -hmm. and say bring it to the people who are going to be dealing with this every day awesome. you know we'll have good business use cases we're not just going to be unreasonable but hey you know at the end of the day it's not the people in the suits or executives that have to look at deal with the software yeah they'll be the ones yelling at the people who can't use the tool yeah <laughs> <laughs> Ah, the tool you helped us get. Oh, I just read, who, was it the Agile Alliance? Somebody just yesterday, I saw a note about their um, state of Scrum. Version 1 does that. Yeah, but, yeah. but that's what I was reading, is that yeah. Version 1 does it, and I thought this was just the repackaging, but it's their own. Oh. And the little comment, and I didn't get into it, the little comment I read was, how interesting, uh, Version 1 pushes safe, and the Agile Alliance has less, way higher... In its adoption rate. Huh. So, yeah, I just saw this yesterday. I didn't know so that. I know that Scrum Alliance is now, you know. Yeah, and you know what? I, yeah. I, I looked at it so quickly. I'm yeah. wondering if it was Scrum Alliance, not Agile Alliance, because that would make more sense. But, I mean, it was supposed to be, both of them are supposed to be just, I'm getting data and I'm reporting right. what's happening. But stagger, staggeringly, the, uh, the version one version had, had, <laughs> had safe in there. Any, the, what's the line from any any pollster? Tell me what result you want, and I'll ask the right. <laughs> I'll ask the right question. Yeah. I did. I did laugh. I, this was the first year of ver, in version one when you had what your role was. Mm. <laughs> this is amazing. That Scrum Master was a line. Every other year when I answered it, I had to put other. And and I mentioned we had at at, uh, at one of the Agile SoCal's we right. had. Um, um. Yeah, I know. Yeah, him. anyway. Right. And what I are, said, what are we one. now? Well, now there's actually Scrum Master. There's actually a role. But before, uh -oh. there would be, like, there were, like, ten different roles, but Scrum Master wasn't one of them. Project manager was in there. Yeah, yeah. And product owner was in there. Mm -hmm. But Scrum Master wasn't. So I finally, this year, I said, well, now I'm going to follow your results a little more closely. Mark Rogge, I think, is was. That's it. Yeah. Mark, yeah. Any good books? Larry. Yes. Great. I you wanted to get a collection here. I'm, I'm burning through my book list at a pretty good rate. Um, commuting from Irvine to El Segundo helped me a lot, but now that I'm not doing that, I've slowed down quite a bit. Uh, but still, um, good books. I've read three recently that I really liked. I thought I'd just mention them quickly. How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett. The reason why I read this book was, you know, you, you oftentimes in Agile adoptions run into people who emotionally respond to things you say. And so the, the question is, then how do you respond to those emotions? And then what goes through my mind is, well, you know, anger is just, you know, part of the human response or, no, just, so I wanted to get deeper into this. And she, her whole idea is that emotions are constructed uh, based on a number of things, your environment, culture you work in, but for the way the brain works is it's confronted with a, uh, a new situation or a situation. It tries to put that into some kind of a category. It might put it in the anger category, and then you respond with anger, but you know, you can actually put it in the happiness category. So as a, 
agile coach here or a transformation person, I want to work with them to get them from the, you know, put that in a different box. Why would you, of course, they're not doing this consciously. Your brain works so fast because it's been doing this ever since you were a firstborn. It's, yeah, really, it's got these neural the, pathways yeah, she, Yes, she, she goes into the science in, in, in a lot of detail. But your, your, your little baby brain was already working on this. Sounds like, sounds like Curtis is talking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, well, I kind of like it because you know how you've always heard the adage of um, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control your response. Yeah. Right? And so my idea here is that when I get confronted with, I'll just do, use an extreme case. When, when a manager or a director that I deal with and said, you know, we really have to change this process. I want you to really think about it. Boom, he, th- he blows up. Then what's my response? Is like, I, I, no, I go, you know what? Now I know how to process that and go, now I know how to work with this guy. Okay, you know what? I can ask some more questions. I don't have to be overloaded with his response, even if he did blow it up all over the room or whatever. But I, I don't have to respond to that in a fearful or a negative way. I, I could get mad at him, too. That's <laughs> often, often what I struggle with. Somebody gets mad at me, I go, hmm. <laughs> so, so, no, I, I know that, let's, hey, let's put that thought that response in a different bucket. And so let me ask him some questions that helps his brain think about that response going, you know, maybe I didn't need to be angry. I don't have to be fearful. I think I can put it in the at least almost happy box. <laughs> so, Is so, it an almost happy box? <laughs> <laughs> I would think any number of things that the brain does. It's really quite interesting. So that was my, my first one, how emotions are made. And it helped me as an agile coach to be able to work with people's responses that I've struggled with in the past. Very important. Also, at a team level, you know, when you get a, <laughs> you get you get the lead going. I'm not going to let anybody look at my code. <laughs> you know, okay, we'll work with that now. So I, I have some more tools in my toolbox based on this book, and that was very good. Another one that I got very challenged by is extreme ownership by uh, Yako Wilnick and Leif Basin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. B A so Bab, Babin, that's a B-A-B-I-N. Uh, extreme ownership, if you look for the book, you'll find it. There's, it's not like a, there's two dozen under that title. But this is, um, <clears throat> these are um, principles from the, um, the Navy SEALs um, training program right, yeah. that adapt, that work perfect with, with uh, agile, any kind of agile lifestyle. Agile adoptions. If something goes wrong, you don't blame anybody. I've always had that as a principle anyhow. One of the first things I tell my teams is I don't throw anybody under the bus. If we, if we fail, we fail together, and I'll take the responsibility for it. So don't worry about getting burned. I'll take care of it. And if I get burned, big deal. I, I don't mind the temperature. I can handle that. But I want to make a safe place for my, my team to be able to make mistakes. And so he, he puts a huge emphasis on the fact if you're the leader, you own it, and if it fails, you own it. Now, I love the other part of this. He goes, and if they're successful, the team owns it. And I go, yeah, that's great. He has, he has several, experience, uh, several stories in here about how he's applied that in business, how they apply that in, um, in uh, Iraq, in combat situations. It's very inspiring, and I was extremely uh, motivated by this book. It was more confirming than anything else, but I just was kind of going, amen, brother, preach it throughout the whole mm-hmm. thing. It's a very I good mean, book. You have to give so many kudos to our military for the kind of military it is and, and how much they bring to agile culture. I was also thinking Absolutely. of Team of Teams and Stanley yes. McChrystal's book, right? And, and that's, 
I mean, they obviously, I've never been in the military, but I'm, I'm so impressed by um, the way in which they get teams motivated. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. Have you seen the um, uh, Manage by Intent, or Requirements by Intent? It's by, uh, gosh, I can't think of his name. It's about a 10-minute uh, uh, video of a nuclear submarine captain. Oh, yeah, I've seen oh, that. Yeah. It's um, David Marquet. Marquette. Yes, yes. So I, I was going to mention I just got the workbook for, for Turn the Ship Around, yeah. oh, which, yeah. is, which um, is intention based management. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I saw it at uh, Scott Dunn's um, summit that he did back in October, I think it was. And I was flipping through it on the table of books that he kind of gives away yeah. at the end. And I was like, oh, I'm going to buy this. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Pete, Pete Behrens uses that in his Agile Leadership. So there's Last a TED two. Talk that he did, which I would recommend for, th- for anyone to check out. That may be the one that... I think I saw that yeah. too, yeah. It, The one that I had had great graphics. You know, he had somebody yeah, else drawing right. while he was doing it. It was under 10 minutes, and it was... Yeah. And he, he just spoke at the um, Agile 2017 that they did uh, this past year. Yeah, we tried to get him for... Um, the Scrum Gathering in, in San Diego last year, and, and Scrum Alliance was like, no. So they, they wanted him, he was but they had Agile. someone else. They had someone else chosen, so I was like, yeah. Well, because he was also probably at Agile Alliance. They didn't <laughs> want they, Scrum Alliance. Yeah, well, we came first. <laughs> but um, Team of Teams, you mentioned, is, yeah. is that something that... Uh, I haven't read it yet, but it's been highly recommended by someone who did yeah. that, that says if you're an Agilist, you should read it, so... Yeah. I was just thinking, you guys blow my mind as, how, as to how much reading you do. Clearly, I have to drop the Rachmaninoff practice and get on the reading. <laughs> well, that's a tough one. That's a very tough call, I have to admit. The, the thing that turned, your shoes. turned me around, it's hard to write notes, but I've been doing a lot of books on tape, books on CD. Yeah. And my, okay, okay. my commute also is not as long, oh, but, okay. but it does, you know, I rip it onto my iPod and go for walks. I mean, how do you guys... Um, quiet the left brain because you know mm. in, in my yoga practices and the mindfulness piece I, I use my commute time to meditate breathe and, and actually purge my mind of thoughts yeah. to become a blank slate so it's very hard for me to find time I do read I, I, I between 8 and 9 in the morning but usually those are kind of practical readings for my job right It's mm. um, so I, I have that time box but I don't have enough time to get to some of this other stuff and then by the end of the day my mind is so full that it actually needs to be emptied so that I can become a receiver again and a good coach and somebody who's open. So uh, the PATH podcast, which you and I had talked about, I was going to uh, spend some time talking to you um, on that. That's one of the main questions that I ask too is how do you recharge and how do you kind of resettle too, those, those questions. So that's something that I've been interested in as well. But to answer your question for me personally, what I do, uh, what I've done in the past is either, um, and I haven't done any exercise lately, but on, on January 1st, I went for a big hike in the woods kind of thing. And I love to listen to podcasts whenever I can, but this time around, I just kind of took the earbuds out and, and just tried to not focus on anything. Whenever a topic would come up, I kind of use that meditative practice of eliminating it from my mind so I can kind of be more present on the walk. It's a, it is an interesting balance because I the last place I was at, I actually had the benefit of being able to walk home along the ocean. Mm. And I use walks for listening to, to books on tape. Mm. And I realized I'm not hearing the ocean. Now, uh, what yeah, I'm hearing exactly. is really good. And it was, yeah. it was such a, a pull in both directions of, wow, this is a great time for me to listen to this stuff without interruptions. 
the ocean is right there. Yeah. So I pull it out. And it's a fear of missing out, too. It's like, I, if I take the earbuds out, and I, I'm going to miss something. Well, That's how I feel. Yeah. I can yeah, stop can, it. Yeah. I can stop it. Yeah, it's not yeah. like live yeah, radio. Well, I, maybe I didn't make that clear. I do stop it when I take the earbuds out. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a? I have a practice? final. I have a final. Oh, a practice. A practice. Yeah, yes. Sure. Yes, I do. I was. Um, and I. Uh, I like bicycling. I used to jog. I'm not a really good jogger, but I still enjoyed it. But my legs just got a little bit too. It was became too hard. You know, once you get shin splints or something, you go. Oh, I'd rather find something else. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, doing road biking, and I like doing this on the weekend. Uh, I want to work back up to it to do it every evening if I can, now that I'm a little closer to home. Mm-hmm. And there I just I just listen to the bike in my body, work with the bike. It's a lot of fun. And I like to empty that all out. So it's me and my machine in the fresh air. I, I do I live in Irvine, so I do the back bay thing yeah, up and around. So, I, so you get to see the... The salt water and the birds and all that, and then go over the big all the traffic across the Pacific Coast Highway and back up again and on the way around. And it's um, it's a good in past the airport. It's kind of interesting to see all the private I just jets. Got inspired about a new podcast, Vic. We can take it on the road and do like this five a.m. in the morning, like meditative <laughs> podcast while we talk before everyone wakes up. <laughs> <laughs> More to come, listeners. More to come. Um, what's your last book? My last book that I've uh, recently read is um, Anti-Fragile, Things That, uh, that uh, Gain From Disorder. And this is an interesting book. The, the author is Nissan Nicholas um, Taleb. I believe he's a Lebanese Jew. It's kind of interesting combination. He wrote The Black Swan. I yes, he wrote yeah. The Black Swan. That I have to still read. So I've kind mm-hmm. of read his books backwards, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But he goes into a lot of scientific observations about, uh, he goes into a lot of data about how fragile things give way. You have an anti-fragile environment is kind of his, his thing. So an old traditional environment, it's, it's not adaptive to change. And how that will give way to um, fragility. And there's sort of a cycle that takes place. But you need... One leads to the other. The other leads to the one, uh, anti-fragility leads to fragility. Fragility leads to anti-fragility. It's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting cycle that takes place there, and that and that helped me a lot to realize that if you're up against a traditional situation or traditional uh, or organization. Uh, banks would be a great example, or healthcare organizations, because they're regulated and all, even though they don't have to be so anti-fragile. But the thing is, if you wait long enough, it breaks. And when you see breaks in the system, that's where you can begin to say, you know what, there's a better way to do this. And let's embrace something that's a little more flexible, a little more... that is able to manage fragility. Because you, you, people look at their systems often, and they think, by golly, this is what we've done it all along, and this is how we're going to do it. And that's, but that will break. We live in such a dynamic world, and something else he points out, that I'm sorry, but your ship that has always been that way, it's going to get cracks. And when it gets cracks, it's going to leak. And when it leaks, you can apply um, anti or sorry, you can, you can apply principles of fragility, meaning ag- agility, basically, is what he's saying. So you can introduce that at that level. So don't worry. If you work in a very 
anti, uh, if you work in a very anti-fragile, very set environment, give it time, and then look for those, those breaks, those cracks, and then address, those, then, then that's your opportunity to bring in a new idea, which would be, you know how we can handle, this is always going to be fragile. This is a fragile situation right here. So uh, this is how we can manage it. Here, look at these ideas from, from Agile that we can bring in here. Look at, you know, Scrum might be a really good idea here. And so don't panic. Don't get depressed. Our world is changing so fast that anti-fragile systems will, they're not, they can't last. Mm -hmm. But one leads to the other, and that was the interesting thing. You can't have one without the other. And that kind of brought a little more... Peaceful. <laughs> I want to. I want to read that book and then have this as a topic for a, a future podcast too. Anti-fragile because um, I remember seeing a video and there and I can't recall what it said now, but there was like the there were like three states and I'll, I'll yeah. look at it and I'll come back. And we'll make that a, a topic for a later podcast. And it, it fits in really well because you you can't have fragile without agile. <laughs> <laughs> that that's I love that. Uh, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Last book ideas. Either of you guys have a book you want to. No, I, I've mentioned a few times. I, I read Essentialism, um, the disciplined pursuit of, of less, not not large scale Scrum, but <laughs> but less, and it's uh, yeah. by McKeon. Yeah. And it was interesting to me in in that it wasn't about agile; it right. was about uh, minimalizing yeah. and focusing um, on the most important things, and then focusing on the next most important thing, um, and. It, an interesting thing that came out of it was, I th he said the word priority came into the English language in like around 1500, hmm. and it was singular. It was singular. There was a priority. It is prior to anything else. A priori, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the 1900s that it became pluralized, huh. that there are priorities. And he, 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 the point he was making was, that's not natural. There is a priority, and that's what you should do. And he talks about the power of no, um, uh, and... Uh, the idea of trade-offs, where you can uh, this just stuck with me. You can ignore making trade-offs, but you can't you can't ignore the effect of of ignoring trade-offs. So this idea, Lencioni in the Advantage talks about the the, the danger of agreeing to disagree, mm -hmm. and in that in that you you may not agree with something, but when you leave um, a, a decision-making situation. You need to agree. You can't say, okay, I disagree with it and walk out and still have another agenda. And that was the same thing here. Is you have a trade-off, you need to address the trade-off. Anyway, it, it was interesting in that it had nothing to do specifically with Agile, but it's so tied together, all of the, um, the practice, that uh, essentialism. I've, I'm going to try to read that at least once a year. It's essential reading, you can say. It's the only priority. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my priority books. One of the, one of the many priorities I have on books, Terry. It's, um, it's a book that, uh, that someone at an Agile, Agile, what was it, a, a coach camp, a, coach, a coaching retreat turned me on to years ago, um, and Chris Wagoner. And, uh, yeah, it changed my, my perspective on in a lot of things. In fact, it helped me make the podcast. Uh, I think I may have started the podcast in advance, but, but it helped open up more space for me to put more time and um, effort into the podcast. Cool. So um, with that, we've, we've hit our mark, um, our time box for today. So I want to thank everyone uh, for participating again. Um, Colleen Kirtland at Purpose Creator on Twitter, Ben Rodelitz, 
Larry Lawhead at Larry Lawhead on Twitter. Um, we're going to have all of your contact information on the website, agilecoffee.com slash episode 57. And one more big thank you to yes, Colleen. For, yeah, not only um, bringing us into the house, but providing us food and, and what a great environment and, and a host of really good topics. Right, an to amazing intro. Great yeah, intro. Yeah. Love the intro. Which will be the outro as well. <laughs> the intro and the outro. <laughs> we might have to re-record that. <laughs> I'm warmed up now. We'll fix it in the mix. Yeah, we'll have to see how that sounds. There you go. So um, until we meet again, listeners, please enjoy your coffee with friends. That's, this is a... That's okay. host of the Agile Coffee Podcast. I'm here to announce my new show, PATH, A Journey to Understanding the Role of Servant Leadership. I decided to start PATH because we live in an age where leaders are portrayed as selfish and not concerned with the needs of their constituents. I'm interested to hear about how leaders chose their vocations, how they were called into service of other people. For me to understand what Robert Greenleaf called servant leadership, I want to discover what influenced these leaders, how they got to where they are in their careers, and what they're moving toward on their own paths. This show is going to feature conversations with people who tend to people's needs and become leaders in the process. Please subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I look forward to serving you as we walk along our path.